Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Radio Westeros, Episode 69, The Red Viper. Spoilers all books! Hello and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere and with me, as always, is Yoke Boy. Yeah, hi there everyone and thanks for being here. Today we're going to give you an in-depth look at a charismatic, seductive and dangerous character who arrives on our pages in the Storm of Swords to turn the plot in King's Landing upside down. It's Oberyn Martell. Yeah, we are very excited to be covering the Red Viper. To set the stage, we'll begin with a brief history of Dorne and learn why it's often viewed as culturally different from the rest of Westeros. Then we'll delve deep into Oberyn's rich backstory, where we'll collect all the details from his time as poisoner, sellsword, lover, student of the Citadel, secret political player, and much more besides. To understand Oberyn, you need to understand his history, so we'll leave no stone unturned in our attempt to find out not only what drives him, but who he was and what he was doing before the main story began. Next, we'll walk through Oberyn's brief yet gigantic part in the saga, from the moment he arrived to take up the Dornish Small Council seat to the roller coaster trial by combat with Gregor Clegane that will have your heart beating in your chest. Hold on tight, folks. Finally, we'll assess Oberyn's legacy and explore what meaning we can find in his devastating demise while keeping the themes of justice and vengeance in sharp focus. In spite of limited page time, Oberyn is a character who sticks in our minds, vivid and lifelike. So let's explore why that is today. And Radio Westeros is supported by the kindness of our patrons. So before we begin, let's take a moment to shout out our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Pale as Milk Glass patrons, Daniel, Chris B, The Song of Ice, Seth, Kelly, Laura, Sister Winter, Moltude, Scotty, and John Wigarian, as well as B-Word and Mr. J, The Bear and the Maiden Fair, and Sir Tim of House Jib Jab Hot Dog Shop, house motto, We Forge the Chains We Wear in Life. Thanks so much to all of our patrons, and if you want to be a patron of the show, earn shoutouts, get to hear episodes up to a week before public release, and gain access to our patron-exclusive content, 
Find us at patreon.com stroke Radio Westeros. And now, let's get started with Oberyn Martell, the Red Viper of Dorne. Only a Dornishman can ever truly know Dorne, it is said. The southernmost of the Seven Kingdoms is also the most inhospitable and the strangest to the eyes of any man raised in the Reach or the Westerlands or King's Landing, for Dorne is different in more ways than can be told. Dorne is perhaps the most unique and little understood of the kingdoms of Westeros. Its rocky shores and deserts are shielded from the rest of the continent by a forbidding mountain range, the Red Mountains, which mark its borders with the Reach and Stormlands. Sparsely populated due to its inhospitable environment, the people of Dorne represent the waves of invaders who settled the lands at various points in its history. The first men arrived in Westeros via a land bridge that once connected Dorne to Essos, precisely where the landmass known as the Broken Arm of Dorne and the archipelago known as the Stepstones are today. While the first people of the continent, the Children of the Forest, had little use for the largely treeless territory, the first men did make inroads into some of the more hospitable areas, though most are noted to have passed through on their way to areas more conducive to flourishing human civilization, such as the Reach, the Stormlands, and beyond, those that remained settled on the shores of rivers and in mountain valleys. Today, their descendants, who later mixed with successive waves of Andal invaders, are known as the Stony Dornish, tall, fair-haired, and fair-skinned. Danes, Ironwoods, Blackmonts, Fowlers, Wills, and more tend to live on the periphery of the region in ancient and storied strongholds. After the destruction of the land bridge at some point in the ancient past, the seafaring Andals arrived, though never in as great numbers as they did in other areas with more forgiving coastlines and sheltered anchorages. As in the north, the rocky and treacherous coastline protected much of Dawn from the new settlers. But some did travel up the rivers and from there into the interior of the region where, their skin burned dark by the fierce southern sunshine, they became known as the Sandy Dornish. Vaith, Ulla, Corgyle and Ilarion are all sandy, as was a lesser house founded by an Andal called Morgan Martell, who won and settled in territory on the rocky east coast. So far, the settlement of Dorne, while varying in some ways and, as noted, being fairly sparse, still mostly resembles the settlement of the rest of Westeros, with the exception of the north, where Andals failed to make inroads altogether. It was the arrival and integration of a fresh wave of immigrants, refugees from the conquests of the Valyrian freehold in the Roinar Valley of Essos, which truly sets Dorne apart from its fellow regions of Westeros. Princess Nymeri of Nysar led her people, famously aboard a thousand ships, from the Rhoyne region to the shores of Westeros, though none would say the route they took was direct. Upon their arrival, which occurred near to the Martell fortress called the Sandship, she allied with Lord Moore's Martell and bound her people to dawn forever by burning all their ships upon the shore. 
Thus was born House Nymeros Martel, and as descendants of the Roinar, they, along with their neighbours of Houses Santagar, Jordain, Dolt and others, came to be known as Salty Dornish, dark-skinned and slender people who have retained many of the physical characteristics of their Roinar ancestors. The Roinar didn't just bring their names and physical attributes to Westeros. They also brought many cultural traditions which have been absorbed into Dornish culture and, along with the harsh environment and unique population patterns, have contributed to the distinctly different customs to be found in Dorne. Everything from their dress and food to their horses and even their accents when speaking the common tongue are tinged with difference, but perhaps most different of all are the sexual mores. Men and women alike practice what can only be called free love. Paramours are commonplace and bastardy bears no particular stain. Homosexuality is likewise accepted and the rights of women are considered equal to those of men, even in matters of inheritance. All in all, Dorne is the most culturally progressive region of the continent. There is a smaller fourth group of cultural Dornishmen known as the Orphans of the Greenblood. These people are mainly centred around Plankytown and the mouth of the river Greenblood. They are Roinar who never gave up their desire for home even after Nymeria burned their ships. While they remained with their princess, they never fully integrated and most live on pole boats, maintaining as close as possible their Roinar traditions and dreaming of the day when they can return to their motherland. These disparate groups form the Kingdom of Dorne, though its rulers of House Nymeros Martel, who eventually consolidated their control over the entire region, never used the term king, preferring the Asosi fashion of styling themselves as ruling princes and princesses. In an ironic twist, many generations after Nymeria and the Roinar arrived on the shores of Dorne, fleeing the destruction of their homeland by the Valyrian freehold, the first external challenge to Martel dominance over Dorne would come from the Valyrians of House Targaryen, Aegon the Conqueror, his two sisters, and their dragons. Dawn did more than resist the Targaryen conquest of Westeros. Generations of Targaryens would throw themselves at the southern kingdom along with their allies and generations would be maimed or perish. Oris Baratheon, Aegon I's half-brother and hand, was captured during the attempt to conquer Dawn during the conquest. When he was ransomed, he and all the lords who had been captured with him were returned minus their sword hands. During the same war, Lord Harlan Tyrell and an entire army of Reachmen were swallowed up by the Dornish Desert, but it was the fate of Aegon's sister Queen Rhaenys during the First Dornish War that would lead the Targaryens to leave Dorn in peace for nearly 150 years. Rhaenys and her dragon Meraxes were both killed at the Hellholt, the stronghold of House Uller, as she flew there in support of her brother's latest effort to subdue Dorne. Her death and its aftermath brought about a detente between House Targaryen and House Martell that would last until after the Dance of the Dragons. It was Aegon III's son and successor, Daron I, known as the Young Dragon, who revived the effort by House Targaryen to conquer Dorne. 
The young dragon's conquest of Dorne would cost the realm another Lord Tyrell, an estimated 50,000 men, and ultimately the life of Daron himself, with Daron's cousin Aemon the Dragon Knight held for a time in cruel captivity in a crow cage by Lord Will of Will. Daron's successor and brother Baylor, who would become known to history as Baylor the Blessed, resolved the situation by walking barefoot to Sunspear and forging a peace with the Prince of Dorne, which would be cemented by the marriage of his cousin Daron to Princess Maria Martell. The marriage of Maria Martell to Daron Targaryen would bring Dorne into the Seven Kingdoms at last. And when Daron sent his sister Daenerys to marry his good brother, Prince Maron Martell, not only was peace assured at last, but a family bond was forged that would make House Martell one of the staunchest allies of House Targaryen throughout the tumultuous third century. Yeah, not only were all the kings of the Seven Kingdoms who followed Daron I directly descended from a princess of Dorne, in turn, all the princes and princesses of Dorne who followed Maron Martell were descended from Daenerys Targaryen. Only an estimated three to four generations will have passed since these unions in the current story, and so the kinship would still feel quite close closer and more lasting than any other connection House Targaryen had in the Seven Kingdoms during this period. In the lead-up to the main narrative, we hear about Doran Martell's mother, the future ruling Princess of Dawn, serving as a lady-in-waiting to Rhaella Targaryen, her brother Lewin becoming a member of Aerys II's Kingsguard. And of course, we've speculated that the pivotal marriage of Rhaegar Targaryen to Elia of Dorne wouldn't have occurred without this close kinship between the two houses. We've seen that Dorne is a place of fierce independence where passions run high and a unique culture exists, which has set it apart from the rest of Westeros for centuries. And so now, with an understanding of the background of House Martell and their relationship with not only House Targaryen, but the Seven Kingdoms in general, we can move on to our analysis of that most fascinating of Dornishmen, Prince Oberyn Nymeros Martell, beginning with an overview of his life up until the moment he first appears on page in A Storm of Swords. Oberyn was ever the viper, deadly, dangerous, unpredictable. No man dared tread on him. I was the grass, pleasant, complacent, sweet-smelling, swaying with every breeze. Who fears to walk upon the grass? But it is the grass that hides the viper from his enemies and shelters him until he strikes. One of the most astonishing aspects of Oberyn Martell's part in the story is how little we actually see him on page. We first meet him in Tyrion Lannister's point of view, some way into A Storm of Swords, and he's present in just four chapters before meeting his doom in King's Landing, when he's brutally slain by Gregor Clegane in Tyrion's trial by combat. But despite his lack of page time, Oberyn inhabits our minds as fully formed as any of the main characters, and it's interesting to contemplate how George managed to sculpt such a living and breathing, real-feeling character so succinctly. Of course, soon after his introduction, 
Oprin is given juicy and unforgettable plot points, but perhaps one of the most effective strategies George uses to actually flesh out his character is via backstory. While Oberyn comes and goes from our pages in a relative flash, the author creates a rich and interesting character history to ensure there's a sense of depth and intrigue. At once, Oberyn's backstory adds detail to his magnetic aura and encourages other characters to continue assessing his legacy long after his demise. And so, let's put the history of Oberyn Martell under the microscope. Oberyn Nymeros Martell was born to an unnamed Princess of Dorne and her consort the year before the tragedy at Summerhall, or thereabouts, making him around 42 when he was killed. His name might have been inspired by Oberon, a fey figure from medieval literature famously employed by William Shakespeare in A Midsummer Night's Dream, although there's no hint that George took any character cues from this source. George has, however, confirmed that the Red Viper moniker was inspired by the Visconti of Milan, a noble Italian family who rose to power during the Middle Ages, who were associated with poisonings, and whose arms depicted a blue viper. And baby Oberyn arrived into the world squalling and kicking, according to his brother Doran. Evidently, the Red Viper was a born fighter. Doran had been born some ten or so years earlier, followed by his two brothers, Mors and Oliver, who we learn both died in infancy. The sadness of these royal deaths was compounded by the series of miscarriages the princess subsequently suffered. However, nine years after Doran's birth, Elia was born. Doran was a squire at Saltshore, seat of House Gargolin, when, quote, the raven arrived with word that my mother had been brought to bed a month too soon. I was old enough to understand that meant the child would not live. Even when Lord Gargolin told me that I had a sister, I assured him that she must shortly die. Yet she lived by the mother's mercy, and a year later, Oberyn arrived. So already we can understand the importance of family to House Martell at this time, and specifically to Doran who, quote, had given up on the hope of brothers. Alia and Oberyn's births followed a period of tragedy and brought a new unexpected feeling of hope to the house. After overcoming their prior misfortunes, and now with three healthy heirs and direct links to the upper echelons of Westerosi royalty and nobility, House Martell must have felt a degree of personal and political optimism. Regarding those links, House Martell, as we mentioned, was one of the closer family connections of House Targaryen, following the marriage of Princess Daenerys Targaryen to Prince Maron Martell several generations back. And Oberyn's mother, as we noted, at some point spent some time as a lady-in-waiting to Rhaella Targaryen, and by this arrangement, came to know and be friends with Lady Joanna Lannister. Given that Lady Joanna is only noted to have been in King's Landing from 259 to 263 AC, we must assume that either the Princess of Dorne was in the capital after the birth of her youngest son, or that Joanna spent time with Rhaella earlier than is noted in the world book. 
In any case, at some point after his ascension in 262 AC, King Ares would visit Sunspear, where he hatched an ambitious plan to make the Dornish deserts bloom by carving an enormous underground canal beneath the Red Mountains. And so, the Martels seem to have been well-placed within the feudal hierarchy, despite the king's literal pipe dream, like so many of his wild ideas, coming to nothing. But, beside making inroads with royal Targaryens, the Martels also valued local alliances, and so young Oberyn was sent to Sandstone, seat of House Corgyle, for fostering. After his time at Sandstone, when he was in his early teens, Oberyn was taken on a tour by his mother and her consort in order to find suitable marriage matches for him and Elia. He tells Tyrion, We were on a quest of sorts, a quest that took us to Starfall, the Arbor, Old Town, the Shield Islands, Craycall, and finally Casterly Rock, but our true destination was marriage. Doran was betrothed to Lady Malario of Norvos, so he had been left behind as Castellan of Sunspear. My sister and I were yet unpromised. It's interesting to contemplate the matches their parents might have been considering at some of those locations. At Starfall, they might have met Arthur and Ashara Dane and the unnamed elder brother. At the Arbor, perhaps Paxter or Bethany Redwine might have been prospective matches. While in Old Town, one of the possible matches they were introduced to was Baylor Hightower. Baylor had sisters too. Melora and Allery, who would eventually wed Mace Tyrell, would have both been of an age to consider marriage. But the story of Elia's introduction to Lord Leighton's heir Baylor, now known as Baylor Brightsmile, is rife with tragic irony. Oberyn tells Tyrion about Baylor, quote, a pretty lad, and my sister was half in love with him until he had the misfortune to fart once in our presence. I promptly named him Baylor Breakwind, and after that, Ilya couldn't look at him without laughing. I was a monstrous young fellow. Someone should have sliced out my vile tongue. Tyrion silently agrees and supplies the tragic irony in his thoughts. Had Ilya wed him in place of Rhaegar Targaryen, she might be an old town with her children growing tall around her. He wondered how many lives had been snuffed out by that fart. As an aside, although Oberyn's backstory is nigh on impossible to date precisely due to the many variables within the time frames we've been given, it's possible that he conceived Obara, the first of his illegitimate daughters known as the Sand Snakes, with a local sex worker when he visited Old Town during this journey when he was a mere 14 or 15 years old. And it was also while they were in Old Town that the traveling Martells heard the tragic news of Lady Joanna Lannister's death birthing her second son, Tyrion. Joanna's husband, Tywin, was a notoriously brutal man who had already by then extinguished the houses of Rain and Tarbeck, but apparently he dearly loved his wife, who was said to have had much influence over him behind the scenes, and he would have been devastated by her unexpected passing. Still, the Princess of Dorne made the fateful decision to press on with the visit to Casterly Rock, perhaps due to an arrangement she and Joanna had made before her death. Oberyn tells Tyrion, Elia and I were older, to be sure. Your brother and sister could not have been more than eight or nine. Still, a difference of five or six years is little enough, and there was an empty cabin on our ship. 
a very nice cabin, such as might be kept for a person of high birth, as if it were intended that we take someone back to Sunspear, a young page, perhaps, or a companion for Ilia. Your lady mother meant to betroth Jamie to my sister, or Circe to me, perhaps both. However, where Tywin had once, quote, been ruled by his lady wife, he was now free to make independent decisions regarding the future of House Lannister without compromising with Joanna's wishes. Tywin was hand to King Aerys and was by all accounts a hugely influential figure within the governance of the Seven Kingdoms, with some even whispering that it was he who truly ruled over Westeros. Being a man of such high ambition, it seemed that Tywin would not settle for the plan to marry Elia and Oberyn to Jaime and Cersei, and instead aim to marry his daughter to Aerys's son, Prince Rhaegar, to bind House Lannister to House Targaryen through their matrimony. As such, when the Martells arrived at Casterly Rock, the welcome they received was far from warm. Oberyn recalls that... Your father ignored us the whole time we were there after commanding Sir Kevin to see to our entertainment. The cell they gave me had a feather bed to sleep in and mirish carpets on the floor, but it was dark and windowless, much like a dungeon when you came down to it, as I told Ilya at the time. Tywin could be forgiven for experiencing a period of mourning following the death of his wife, yet there's every indication that his treatment of the Martells was meant as it was perceived, a slight made to the visiting family to ward off the princess's notion of uniting the two houses. The Dornish contingent had travelled far to the rock, probably at Joanna's invitation, and so as guests it must have been difficult to bear Tywin's purposeful rudeness which implied that the Martells were a class below the Lannisters. Oberyn tells Tyrion on the morning of his trial by combat against the mountain that my mother waited as long as was decent and then broached your father about our purpose. Years later, on her deathbed, she told me that Lord Tywin had refused us brusquely. His daughter was meant for Prince Rhaegar, he informed her. And when she asked for Jaime to espouse Elia, he offered her you instead. So, as readers, we have to ask ourselves, why exactly did Tywin refuse the Jamie-Elia match? In hindsight, this pairing would have taken Elia off the table and made Tywin's dream of a Rhaegar-Cersei union more likely. One would have thought that a game player like Tywin would have seen these enormous benefits. If he could have married one child into House Targaryen and one into House Martell, the Lannisters would have been in a great position, and Jaime would still be in line to inherit Casterly Rock with his princess wife by his side. We can't think of a political reason why Tywin would turn this offer away, and so we wonder if there was some sort of racism or xenophobia behind his decision-making. It would explain why he chose to treat the Martells with such disdain. As it went, Tyrion was a newborn babe, and in spite of the Martell children seeing a beautiful child where others perceived a monster, the Princess of Dorne took the offer of marrying him to Elia, as well as the overall manner in which the Martells were treated, as an outrageous insult. As Oberyn prepares himself before his duel, he has this exchange with Tyrion. Well, Rhaegar married Ilya of Dorne, not Cersei Lannister of Casterly Rock, so it would seem your mother won that tilt. 
She thought so, Oberyn agreed, but your father is not a man to forget such slights. He taught that lesson to Lord and Lady Tarbeck once, and to the reigns of Castamere, and at King's Landing, he taught it to my sister. So, before his death, Oberyn describes a fuller picture of this trip to Casterly Rock and insinuates that Tywin ordered the brutal slaughter of Elia and her children during the sack of King's Landing as a cold-served revenge for marrying the crown prince he intended to match with Cersei. And as we'll see throughout this episode, revenge is a key word in the study of Oberyn Martell. The final takeaway from Oberyn's time at Casterly Rock is that he was sympathetic towards Tyrion from the outset. While rumors circulated about baby Tyrion's deformities, including talk of him being a hermaphrodite, possessing a tail, sharp claws, and teeth so long he couldn't keep them in his mouth, Oberyn and Elia did not find the baby at all off-putting. Cersei, on the other hand, was disgusted by her younger brother, cruelly twisting his privates and wishing him dead for killing their mother. This dynamic simultaneously paints Cersei in a bad light with regard to her youngest brother, provides groundwork for Oberyn defending Tyrion, and hints at an open-minded heroism in Oberyn's character. We learn there's more to him than pure venom and ferocity, which is at odds with the public perception of him. But further on in the timeline, a year or two after the events at Casterly Rock had transpired, we do witness some of that trademark ferocity in action. Soon after realising that Oberyn had arrived to take up the Dornish council seat rather than his more sedate brother Doran, Tyrion thinks, When he was no more than sixteen, Prince Oberyn had been found abed with the paramour of Old Lord Ironwood, a huge man of fierce repute and short temper. A duel ensued, though in view of the prince's youth and high birth, it was only to first blood. Both men took cuts, and honour was satisfied, yet Prince Oberyn soon recovered, while Lord Ironwood's wounds festered and killed him. Afterward, men whispered that Oberyn had fought with a poisoned sword, and ever thereafter, friends and foes alike called him the Red Viper. Although the apparent poisoning of Edgar Ironwood is not elaborated upon much further, it's a pivotal event in Oberyn's story, and indeed that of House Martell, given that House Ironwood is the second most powerful family in Dorne. Not only does Oberyn, at Doran's behest, slip off into unofficial exile in the aftermath of Lord Edgar's death, but Doran later chooses to send his son, Quentin, to foster with the Ironwoods in an attempt to heal the dangerous breach of trust between the two houses. This provides groundwork for Ariane Martel's failed Queenmaker plot in A Feast for Crows. In Ariane's first sample chapter in the Winds of Winter previews, we're told that blood feud and rebellion would surely have followed Lord Edgar's death had not her father acted at once. And the further sting in the tale is that Quentin's fostering was one of the principal reasons Doran's Norvoshi wife, Lady Malario, eventually left him to return to her home. The Ironwood Affair also informs us of Oberyn's curious penchant for poison, and in his exile, Oberyn first travelled to Old Town, then to Lys and the Free Cities, where it's said that he, quote, learned the poisoner's trade and perhaps arts darker still, if rumours could be believed. 
It might also have been during this tour of the free cities that Oberyn fathered the second of his sand snakes with an unnamed Volantine noblewoman. Nymeria Sand is said to have been born in Volantis from the noblest local blood, a reference to the Old Blood who traced their proud lineage all the way back to Old Valyria and thus consider themselves to be of better breeding stock than other Volantines. Following his time in the Free Cities, Oberyn wound up soldiering for the Second Sons in the disputed lands of mainland Essos. The ongoing conflicts in the area, largely between Myr, Lys, and Tyrosh, had brought much devastation over the years. With Oberyn being well-moneyed and privileged, he hardly needed to answer the call of a sellsword company in a notoriously dangerous part of the world, so we can imagine that his objective here was to closely study the art of war, gain battle experience, and develop his martial skills. One can only speculate if he viewed this as personal development or if he anticipated that one day Dorne might go to war. Apparently unsatisfied with riding with the Second Sons, Oberyn followed Agor Rivers' example by leaving the Sons and forming a free company of his own. The World Book tells us that the disputed lands had been the birthplace of more of these so-called free companies than any other place in the known world beginning during the Century of Blood. Even today, there are two score free companies in the region. When not employed by the three quarrelsome daughters, the Selsors oft seek to carve out conquests of their own. George's decision to leave Oberyn's company unnamed has inspired many debates within the fandom regarding who they might be. There are a total of 19 named mercenary companies in the story and auxiliary works, which go as follows. The Adventurers, The Brave Companions, Bright Banners, Company of the Cat, Company of the Rose, Free Company, Gallant Men, Golden Company, Iron Shields, Jolly Fellows, Long Lances, Maiden's Men, Men of Valor, Ragged Standard, Second Sons, Stormbreakers, Stormcrows, Windblown, and Wolfpack. One theory circulating is that his company were the Brave Companions, who have since become corrupt and awful, and although Oberyn forming a company that goes on to create devastation on behalf of Tywin would carry a certain irony, George seems to have nullified this theory with his comments that the Brave Companions are not as old as some companies, nor as young as others. The company we're looking for, at just 20 years old when the novels begin, would be considered young and new. Many of the other companies are demonstrably older than Oberyn himself or can otherwise be discarded, leaving us with the Company of the Cat, the Gallant Men, the Long Lances, and the Stormcrows. Either one of these is Oberyn's company, or perhaps more likely it's a company yet to be named by the author. Given that there are currently said to be 40 sellsword organizations in and around the disputed lands, there's at least 20 that we have no details about. Whether George shares the truth of Oberyn's company, and whether it's pertinent to the wider plot, yet remains to be seen. Perhaps the main takeaway from Oberyn's time in the disputed lands is that he became a highly proficient warrior, leader, and organizer who is passionate about matters of war and combat. And speaking of passion, somewhere during the timeline of his temporary exile, Oberyn fathered his third daughter, the Sand Snake Tyene. Tyene's mother is a scepter, 
and we learn within the Queenmaker chapter that she at one point lived somewhere in the Reach, as Ariane recalls that she had crossed the Manda once when she had gone with three of the Sand Snake to visit Tyene's mother. It's unknown when that trip occurred, and whether Oberyn met the woman in Westeros, or if the unnamed Scepter had been travelling through the disputed lands as a nurse or missionary during his time there. If Oberyn's scepter has been living in the Reach in recent years, it could quash the notion that she might be the mysterious Scepter Lamore we first meet in Essos with John Connington. However, it must be acknowledged that Ariane is around six years older than the boy Scepter Lamore has been instructing aboard the Shy Maid, and we have no idea how long Lamore has held that position. Since it's possible that Ariane made the trip to the Reach as a child, we can't fully rule out the fan theory that Tyen's mother is Lamore, though we don't find it likely. It's difficult to say when Oberyn's exile ended, but we do know that in 281 his nephew Quentin Martell was born in Sunspear, and some years later Quentin would be sent by Doran to foster with House Ironwood as a page. It's possible that following Quentin's birth, Doran approached the Ironwoods about this scenario, leading to the strained relationship between the two houses thawing somewhat and Oberyn's return to Dorne. By then, he had fathered his fourth sand snake, Sorella, with an unnamed summer islander known to be a captain of the swan ship Feathered Kiss. Whether Oberyn met Sorella's mother on a trip across the Narrow Sea, or perhaps at a port somewhere in Westeros, is impossible to say, as once again George leaves the finer details regarding the Sand Snake's mothers wholly ambiguous. Also within the blur of Oberyn's backstory is the fact that he studied at the Citadel. Tyrion thinks that the Red Viper went so far as to forge six links of a maester's chain before he grew bored. Unfortunately, we don't know what disciplines Oberyn studied and gained links in, but given it's said that he learned about poisons and dark arts in Essos, we would guess that he would have been drawn to these subjects in Old Town as well. The fact that he forged six links speak to his high-born education and intelligence. We know he gained serious martial experience in Essos, so added to his feats at the Citadel, Oberyn was evidently a well-rounded, independent spirit and a thoroughly capable individual. The same can be said of his daughter, Sorella, who seems to be following in his footsteps, given that a curious character named Alaras, which is Sorella spelled backwards, has forged three links at the Citadel in quick succession. When exactly Oberyn studied at the Citadel is unknown, but it seems he was often in and out of Old Town. At some point, probably around the time of Quentin's birth or shortly thereafter, he returned to the city to claim and bring home his first daughter, Obara. As we said earlier, Obara's mother was a sex worker, and in the Captain of the Guards chapter in A Feast for Crows, she recounts the day her father came for her. She tells Doran that... My mother did not wish for me to go. She is a girl, she said, and I do not think that she is yours. I had a thousand other men. He tossed his spear at my feet and gave my mother the back of his hand across the face. So she began to weep. Girl or boy, we fight our battles, he said, but the gods let us choose our weapons. He pointed to the spear, then to my mother's tears, and I picked up the spear. I told you she was mine, my father said, and took me. 
Here we see an unsavoury side to Oberyn who abuses the mother of his child while the girl watches on. It's worth considering that this snippet comes to us after Oberyn's demise. He's a character full of passion and heroism who George clearly wanted us to root for throughout A Storm of Swords. Only in the aftermath of his death do we learn that, far from being a heroic prince here, he behaved in this way to a defenceless woman, the hero has feet of clay. Oberyn might have been concerned with the conditions Obara was living in, but with so much left unsaid, we cannot know what justification, if any, Oberyn might have offered for his cruelty. Learning that the mother subsequently drank herself to death within a year is simultaneously indicative of a possible problematic environment for a child and utterly heartbreaking. She is said to have died weeping, and it's a great shame that a character we otherwise love has such a dark episode in his past. There is, however, something to be said for Oberyn not only acknowledging his bastard daughters, but embracing them and bringing them all together at Sunspear. We see another powerful and lusty man in Robert Baratheon leaving many bastards behind on his travels and paying little mind to those few he did acknowledge. Oberyn seems proud of his children no matter how they were born, and despite being very different from each other, the Sand Snakes all take after him in some significant way. The fact that all of them are said to have Oberyn's eyes indirectly informs us that they are their father's daughters, and the diversity between their mothers gives them the distinction necessary to make them an interesting group. With the matter of bastard children, Oberyn was evidently no Robert Baratheon, and so the Sand Snakes remain a close-knit sisterhood. And speaking of Robert, in 282, there was an event so huge that it rocked Westeros to its core, imbuing Dawn in tragedy and ultimately changing the course of Oberyn's story right until the moment of his death. We are, of course, talking about Robert's Rebellion, where battles were fought across the land in the effort to overthrow the Targaryen dynasty which had ruled since Aegon the Conqueror's successful invasion of Westeros almost 300 years earlier. With Oberyn's sister Elia, by then married to Crown Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, and their two royal children still being in infancy, Dawn was heavily invested in the outcome of the uprising. As fighting continued, with the rebellion balanced on a knife edge, a Dornish army of 10,000 men under the command of Prince Lewin Martell of the King's Guard, the uncle of Doran, Oberyn, and Elia, marched to the Riverlands with Prince Rhaegar. In the ensuing battle, Lewin himself was cut down, along with many others on both sides, but it was Robert Baratheon himself who turned the tide of war with one brutal swing of his warhammer to Rhaegar's chest as the pair dueled on horseback in the shallow waters of the Trident. While Rhaegar lay dying with Lyanna Stark's name on his lips, the Baratheon allies knew they were in a great position to usurp the Targaryen throne. The seismic shift in dynamics was felt in King's Landing, where Lannister Toady Grandmaster Pycelle urged King Aerys to open the gates to an army of Westermen in the hope Tywin and his forces would enter and take the throne for himself. The notion of a sack in King's Landing was a great threat to Elia, Aegon and Rhaenys, who had all been kept in the Red Keep as de facto hostages by King Aerys in order to ensure that Dornish loyalty did not waver. When Pycelle's advice was taken and Tywin's forces flooded and sacked King's Landing, Jaime Lannister slew the king to prevent him from incinerating the capital with an explosion of wildfire. 
To prove his newfound loyalty to Robert Baratheon, Tywin secretly ordered brutish henchmen Gregor Clegane and Amory Lorch to scale the walls of Magor's Holdfast and kill the royal children, which would snuff out any future threat to Baratheon authority. In A Storm of Swords, Tywin tells Tyrion how things didn't go exactly as planned. I asked Lorch why it had required half a hundred thrusts to kill Rhaenys, a girl of two, three? He said she'd kicked him and would not stop screaming. If Lorch had half the wits God gave a turnip, he would have calmed her with a few sweet words and used a soft silk pillow. The blood was in him. Gregor Clegane's treatment of Elia and Aegon was similarly unconscionable, with rumours that he dashed Aegon's head against a wall, and then raped and killed Elia with her baby's blood and brains still on his hands, seeming to be confirmed by spymaster Varys. The two dead infants were then gift-wrapped in Lannister cloaks and presented by Tywin to Robert Baratheon, creating revulsion within the Stark camp and beginning the blood feud between House Lannister and House Martell that would come to define Oberyn's character. Where Oberyn was during the rebellion remains unclear and when pressed on the subject, George has said this. Offhand, I don't recall the answer. Maybe in Dorne, maybe across the narrow sea with a sellsword company. I'd have to check my notes to be certain. So, Oberyn's whereabouts at that time are unknown, but both the author's caginess on the subject and the character's later actions lead us to believe that a reveal will be made one day. A glaring lack of information about Oberyn Martell's activities during the rebellion is far too pointed. One thing we can be sure of is that when news of Elia and her children's deaths arrived, it devastated him and House Martell, and echoes of the tragedy continue to sound well into the current story. Oberyn's thirst for revenge clearly did not begin in a storm of swords, given what Tyrion knows of the Red Viper's scheming. He asks Tywin, Is it true he tried to raise Dawn for Viserys? No one speaks of it, but yes, ravens flew and riders rode, with what secret messages I never knew. John Arryn sailed to Sunspear to return Prince Lewin's bones, sat down with Prince Doran, and ended all the talk of war. But Robert never went to dawn thereafter, and Prince Oberyn seldom left it. It's interesting that Tywin believes Oberyn seldom left Dorne because in A Dance with Dragons, we learn of at least one significant instance in which he did. Doran and Oberyn had been quietly scheming to end Robert Baratheon's reign and bring House Lannister to its knees, culminating in a secret plot to marry Arianne Martell to Viserys Targaryen. In A Dance with Dragons, Prince Quentin Martell travels to Marine under Doran's orders to meet with Queen Daenerys, and once presented to her, albeit still disguised as the frog, he pulls an old parchment from a hidden flap on his boot and presents it to Danny. Here's the passage. May we know what it says, Your Grace? asked Sir Barristan. It's a secret pact, Danny said, made in Bravos when I was just a little girl. Sir Willem Darry signed for us, the man who spirited my brother and myself away from Dragonstone before the usurper's men could take us. Prince Oberyn Martell signed for Dorne, with the Sea Lord of Bravos as witness. She handed the parchment to Sir Barristan so he might read it for himself. The alliance is to be sealed by a marriage, it says. In return for Dorne's help overthrowing the usurper, my brother Viserys is to take Prince Doran's daughter Arianne for his queen. 
The old knight read the pact slowly. If Robert had known of this, he would have smashed Sunspear as he once smashed Pike and claimed the heads of Prince Doran and the Red Viper, and, like as not, the head of this Dornish princess, too. No doubt that was why Prince Doran chose to keep the pact a secret, suggested Daenerys. If my brother Viserys had known that he had a Dornish princess waiting for him, he would have crossed his son's beer as soon as he was old enough to wed, and thereby brought Robert's warhammer down upon himself and Dorn as well, said Frog. It's at this point that Frog reveals himself to be Quentin Martell, but unfortunately Daenerys spurns both him and the pact, leaving him so desperate to impress her that he soon attempts to tame her dragons, Rhaegal and Viserion. We all know how that went, but for now let's maintain our focus on Oberyn. Given we know from Danny's memories that she was living in Bravos as a young girl, and the fact that the Sea Lord oversaw the Ariane Viserys contract, we think it's a fair bet that Oberyn, who knew the Free Cities, travelled to sign the pact at the Sea Lord's palace. In which case, we would speculate that Danny was living in exile at the palace when this all occurred. She recalls with fondness her carefree days living at the house with the red door in Bravos with a lemon tree outside of the window. And when Sam Tali travels to Bravos, he recalls that due to the brackish waters around the island, the only place trees grow in Bravos is in, quote, the courts and gardens of the mighty. And of course, there's none more mighty in Bravos than the Sea Lord. Altogether, the clues to the whereabouts of the mysterious house with the red door have been placed by the author. We know that the Sea Lord witnessed the pact with Willem Darry and Oberyn present. We know that Danny lived by a lemon tree in Bravos, and we know the only place in Bravos where trees grow is in the courtyards of the mighty, like the Sea Lord's palace. The significance of the lemon tree takes on a deeper meaning when we consider that the Sea Lord was, according to former First Sword of Bravos, Sirio Pharrell, fond of collecting exotic things, and therefore we wonder if Oberyn could have gifted the lemon tree as a symbol of Dorne, a token of thanks for overseeing the pact and keeping the Targaryen children safe. And the cherry on the cake of this theory is a detail from Danny's trip through the House of the Undying. She sees her house with the red door in Bravos and describes, quote, great wooden beams and the carved animal faces that adorn them. Given we know the Sea Lord kept an exotic menagerie in his garden, the carved animals in Danny's memory would therefore make perfect sense if she was living in the courtyards of the Sea Lord's palace. It would also make political sense that he would grant the Targaryens secret asylum. If their dynasty was ever restored, the Sea Lord would surely prosper, and he was already risking Baratheon wrath by bearing witness to the pact. Finally, this scenario would also explain why Daenerys and Viserys soon found themselves on the run. If Sir Willem died, followed by the Sea Lord himself, the incoming Sea Lord might not have been as sympathetic to Targaryens and the siblings could have found themselves in grave danger. Whatever the case, the fact is that Oberyn was at the centre of what would be viewed in Westeros as a treasonous conspiracy, and that the Martells, the Targaryens, and the Sea Lord had secretly come together to solidify an alliance and create a platform from which to restore the Targaryen dynasty. 
We're left to wonder if Oberyn ever met Sirio Pharrell and if Sirio helped the young Targaryens escape Bravos when the Sea Lord died. When in Bravos, Arya learned that the knives come out whenever a new Sea Lord is chosen, and we can't help but note that Sirio helped her to flee King's Landing under similar circumstances. Although Danny has extremely fragmented memories of a time in Bravos, we do know that she was still very young, perhaps no more than six years old, when Willem Darry died. Therefore, the pact would have been signed between 284 and 290 AC. By then, Oberyn had taken Alaria Sand, natural daughter of Lord Uller of the Hellholt, as a paramour, and fathered two more daughters, Elia and Obella, were born around 285 and 287 respectively. The fact that Oberyn named the first of his daughters to be born after his sister's death, Elia, speaks volumes about his sadness at her demise, and so it should be no surprise that he was actively plotting against the Baratheons and Lannisters at this time. Also around this time was the fateful incident with Willis Tyrell. In A Storm of Swords, we first learned from Marjorie Tyrell in a Sansa point of view, Willis was hurt as a squire riding in his first tourney, his horse fell and crushed his leg. Olena Tyrell soon interjects, blaming Oberyn Martell and his maester, which serves to create a dangerous aura about Oberyn even before he's landed on our pages. Yet when we do get to know Oberyn, his side of the story is markedly different. When Tyrion accuses him of trampling Willis Tyrell, Oberyn doesn't react as expected. Instead, he calmly informs Tyrion that, I had a letter from Willis not a half a year past, we share an interest in fine horseflesh. He has never borne me any ill will for what happened in the lists. I struck his breastplate clean, but his foot caught in a stirrup as he fell, and his horse came down on top of him. I sent a maester to him afterward, but it was all he could do to save the boy's leg. The knee was far past mending. If any were to blame, it was his fool of a father. Willis Tyrell was green as his surcoat and had no business riding in such company. The fat flower thrust him into tourneys at too tender an age— just as he did with the other two. He wanted another Leo Longthorn and made himself a cripple. Knowing that Willis himself bears no ill will towards Oberyn and that the two correspond amiably changes our perception of the event, while Oberyn's assertion that ultimately Mace Tyrell is to blame might not be too far wide of the mark. So we see how Oberyn's fierce reputation is used against him, even in those instances where it's not entirely justified, and the Willis incident continues to be the modern focal point of an animosity between House Tyrell and the Dornish that stretches back for generations. Sometime after Willis was injured, Oberyn fathered two more daughters with Hilaria, Doria, and Loreza for a total of eight known sand snakes. The Red Viper is also rumored to be bisexual, with Jamie Lannister telling Tywin in A Storm of Swords, The man is infamous, and not just for poisoning his sword. He has more bastards than Robert, and beds with boys as well. And in Ariane 1 of The Winds of Winter, we get this. The Bastard of God's Grace was one of Dorne's finest swords, as might be expected from one who had been Prince Oberyn's squire and had received his knighthood from the Red Viper himself. Some said he had been her uncle's lover, too, though seldom to his face. 
In Aris Okart's chapter in A Feast for Crows, we learn that Oberyn was trusted to govern at Sunspear when Doran retreated to the water gardens due to poor health, and that the Viper dutifully reported to his older brother every fortnight, providing further hints that the pair were not in opposition, but rather were scheming together. One thing that's clear is how deep and complex Oberyn's backstory really is. So far we've catalogued his involvement with conflict, murder, exile, mercenary companies, secret pacts and plots, maesters links and numerous lovers, and his fathering of no fewer than eight sand snakes. We can therefore understand how George was able to create a wonderfully detailed character, well-storied, well-travelled and fully realised, despite giving him so little time on page. Oberyn Martell is a classic grey character whose deeds are both good and ill, someone with fiery passion coursing through his veins that manifests in both love and violence, and as such, he's a perfect vessel for George to create carnage and advance the plot within a relatively short amount of time. Now that we're familiar with his backstory, we can begin to assess his impact when he finally arrives in King's Landing with vengeance on his mind. And in the next segment, we'll take it from there. But first, We'll take a moment to thank our patrons from the Valyrian Steel level. Thanks ever so much to Aero Doe, Aileen, Akiva of House Hunt, Akka from Ashai, Oxheart, Amber the Adamant, Hortense of Ashai, Blythe Spirit, Cabot the Unfrozen, Marja the Mage, David, Dean, Drew, James K, Lord Sosa, and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, Miss Jody, J.M., Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Epimetheus, Juna of Hausaiko, Casey, Lady Silverwing, Infendaris, the Unspeakable Terror, Boss, the Sothorian, Sally, Sheila, Tristis Lurian, Wild Child of the Wolfswood, W, Sword of the Evening, and Lady Diarliz of Castlenaki, the Alpha Patron. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Dornish leader forked a stallion black as sin with a mane and tail the color of fire. He sat his saddle as if he'd been born there, tall, slim, graceful. A cloak of pale red silk fluttered from his shoulders and his shirt was armored with overlapping rows of copper discs that glittered like a thousand bright new pennies as he rode. 
His high gilded helm displayed a copper sun on its brow, and the round shield slung behind him bore the sun and spear of House Martell on its polished metal surface. Within the pages of A Clash of Kings, Tyrion Lannister steps up and begins to take center stage in King's Landing. Tywin's underappreciated son is given temporary charge of his father's handship and has everything to prove to the many doubters characterising him as some sort of fiendish imp. With the War of the Five Kings escalating in the Riverlands to the point of requiring his father's full attention and with the threat of an assault on King's Landing by either Stannis or Renly Baratheon growing ever more likely... It's down to Tyrion to act in Joffrey's name and prepare the capital for an all-out invasion that could decide the fate of Westeros. Aside from collecting caches of wildfire and forging links for a giant boom chain, Tyrion's leadership obligations also extend to the organization of political alliances which could potentially strengthen the Lannister cause and weaken their opponents. Worried that Doran Martell might seek to join the Dornish cause to Renly's in order to help overthrow Lannister governance and tip the balance of war, Tyrion must act swiftly and boldly. Here's a conversation between Tyrion and Varys. The Dornishmen thus far have held aloof from these wars. Doran Martell has called his banners, but no more. His hatred for House Lannister is well known, and it is commonly thought he will join Lord Renly. You wish to dissuade him. All this is obvious, said Tyrion. The only puzzle is what you might have offered for his allegiance. The prince is a sentimental man, and he still mourns his sister Elia and her sweet babe. My father once told me that a lord never lets sentiment get in the way of ambition, and it happens we have an empty seat on the small council now that Lord Janos has taken the black. A council seat is not to be despised, Varys admitted, yet will it be enough to make a proud man forget his sister's murder? Why forget? Tyrion smiled. I've promised to deliver his sister's killers, alive or dead, as he prefers, after the war is done, to be sure. Varys describes Tyrion's offer of Gregor's head as blood for Doran's pride and the small council seat as a chair for his ambition. Yet both Tyrion and Varys know it will take more than that to turn an enemy into a friend. Varys points out that, if I were the prince, something more would I require before I should reach for this honeycomb. Some token of good faith, some sure safeguard against betrayal. And this token of good faith, Tyrion had already decided, would be Joffrey's sister Marcella, who ultimately is sent to Dorne to be betrothed to Doran Martell's youngest son, Tristane. Tyrion hopes this move will alleviate the animosities the Martells hold for House Lannister in the aftermath of Ilya's murder and guarantee that Dorne does not forge alliances with Lannister enemies throughout the War of the Five Kings. Despite the potential benefits of the marriage, sending Marcella away is certainly a risky political maneuver given that she could feasibly be taken as a hostage at any point should the Dornish feel aggrieved by the Lannisters and bearing in mind that Tywin is rumoured to have given the orders to kill Elias' children. What the usually astute Tyrion didn't bargain for in this equation is that Doran, a man described by Tywin as cautious, reasoned, subtle, deliberate and indolent, would grant his small council seat to his younger brother Oberyn, who is conversely said to be half-mad. 
and Tyrion wasn't informed of the switch through either diplomatic channels or Varys's whispers. In fact, when Tyrion journeys beyond the outskirts of King's Landing to greet the incoming Dornish contingent during A Storm of Swords, he still believes he is there to escort Prince Doran across the Blackwater. However, when the Dornish leader appears on horseback rather than in the litter that gout-ridden Doran would have required, the penny drops, and Tyrion thinks that it might only take one Dornishman to start a war. Oberyn identifies himself as Doran's replacement on the small council and is described thusly. The princeling removed his helm. Beneath, his face was lined and saturnine, with thin arched brows above large eyes as black and shiny as pools of coal oil. Only a few streaks of silver marred the lustrous black hair that receded from his brow in a widow's peak, as sharply pointed as his nose. A salty Dornishman for certain. Tyrion's immediate thought is that this will mean blood in the gutters, such is the fierce reputation attributed to the Red Viper. With the only prior mention of Oberyn in the book, coming from Elena Tyrell describing him as a Dornish snake for crippling Willis, a story only heard from the Tyrell side at that point, the reader shares Tyrion's concern that the prince represents pure, unadulterated danger. How exactly this danger will manifest within King's Landing when Joffrey and Marjorie's wedding brings Dornishmen, Lannisters and Tyrells together is the key question, and readers sense a cloud of tension from the outset. As soon as Oberyn introduces Tyrion to his bastard-born paramour Ilaria Sand, our point of view begins to consider the complex bind the Lannisters now find themselves in. Should Alaria be placed below the salt at the wedding, the place for lower-class guests, Oberyn would be outraged, yet placing her above the salt would no doubt offend, quote, every lady on the dais. What seems like a minor and straightforward decision about seating arrangements is in fact a political hot potato which needs to be carefully considered by the Lannister wedding planners. No matter what they decide, they risk souring what is meant to be the most momentous of occasions, a royal wedding. This issue is emblematic of the many dilemmas Oberyn brings to the city with him. And Tyrion thinks, did Prince Doran mean to provoke a quarrel? And with regards to Doran's scheming, it should be noted that around the same time Oberyn arrived in the capital to rustle some Lannister feathers, his nephew Quentin was sent by Doran on an ambitious journey across the Narrow Sea to seek out Daenerys Targaryen. His goal was to deliver the secret marriage pact and offer himself as a husband to Daenerys a replacement arrangement for the Ariane Viserys betrothal that was agreed by Oberyn and Willem Darry and witnessed by the Sea Lord of Bravos all those years prior. Of course, the details of Quentin's quest are withheld until A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons, but given Quentin disembarks in Volantis some two months after Oberyn arrives in King's Landing, and that it's noted the young prince frequently stopped along the way, we can surmise that both his and his uncle's journeys were more or less made in parallel. Tyrion, however, remains oblivious to this plotting and as such concerns himself with the immediate Oberyn-shaped problem. After realizing that the Viper's column are far more distinguished than the men he himself has brought, a fact that could no doubt be perceived as a slight made by Tywin against the Dornishmen, Tyrion mutters under his breath, 
Oberyn Nymeros Martell, the Red Viper of Dorne, and what in seven hells am I supposed to do with him? Tyrion recalls the old story about the duel with Edgar Ironwood and of Oberyn's tourneys, battles and carnality that comprised the lore of the Red Viper covered in the previous segment. One of Tyrion's principal concerns is that, given the antipathy we know the Tyrells have for Oberyn, the two factions will now surely be at loggerheads. With both sides being new allies to House Lannister, loyalties will undoubtedly be tested, and the Lannisters might soon find themselves embroiled in a wholly awkward conflict. Tyrion thinks, There is no man in the Seven Kingdoms who will be less welcome at a Tyrell wedding. A wrong word, an ill-timed jest, a look, that's all it will take, and our noble allies will be at each other's throats. Tyrion himself is an interesting choice of point of view to introduce us to Oberyn. Through his perceptive eyes, we notice the mocking edge to the Red Viper's voice. Yet, just as we anticipate further tension between the pair, and we're perhaps ready to take Tyrion's side, Oberyn disarms us with a heartfelt story about his youthful visit to Casterly Rock. The tale begins with Oberyn recalling how his family were rudely treated and snubbed by Tywin following Joanna's death, providing intriguing context to the Dorne-Lannister backstory, stretching back before the murder of Princess Elia. As you'd expect, all of this is deeply personal to Oberyn, yet the story takes an unexpected turn when the Viper recounts his introduction to baby Tyrion. Not only does Oberyn describe the vile rumours surrounding Tyrion after his birth, but he goes on to recount how he and Elia only saw him as a cute babe. It says... Elia even made the noise that young girls make at the sight of infants. I'm sure you've heard it. The same noise they make over cute kittens and playful puppies. I believe she wanted to nurse you herself, ugly as you were. So suddenly the story feels very personal to Tyrion as well, as Oberyn informs him that Cersei blamed baby Tyrion for her mother's death. She twisted your little cock so hard, I thought she was like to pull it off. You shrieked, but it was only when your brother Jamie said, leave him be, you're hurting him, that Cersei let go of you. On the surface, this detail serves to remind us of the long animosity Cersei has held toward Tyrion, a sibling rivalry which we'll see reaching a crescendo later in the book when she accuses her brother of poisoning Joffrey. These dynamics will continue through her feast arc, with the onset of her Tyrion-related paranoia leading her to call for his head. But the notion of Oberyn and Elia being more sympathetic to baby Tyrion than Cersei ever was also provides groundwork for a more positive relationship between Tyrion and Oberyn than we might have expected. Despite the unmistakable tension Oberyn brings with him, in hindsight, the Casterly Rock backstory builds a bridge between the Viper and Tyrion and prefigures the former eventually defending the latter's life in a fight to the death. With the earnest tone Oberyn uses to recall the various abuses against Tyrion that he was too young to remember, we sense that Oberyn is not going to indiscriminately oppose every Lannister. He views Tyrion as somewhat aside from his family, and given the misfortune Tyrion suffers post-Blackwater, that's exactly how Tyrion feels throughout A Storm of Swords. 
By the time Tyrion questions Oberyn about the Willis incident, and we realize that perhaps Mace was more to blame than the Viper was, these snippets of backstory serve to offer us a fresh perspective on the man. Although his reputation precedes him, the reality is that the danger he brings to the story is, by and large, aimed at characters who deserve it. He bears no animosity to Willis, and little to Tyrion. Instead, he seems squarely focused on those who might have been responsible for atrocities against his house and family. When Oberyn talks of seeking justice and declares that, I did not come for some mummer's show of an inquiry, I came for justice for Elia and her children, and I will have it. Starting with this lummox Gregor Clegane, but not, I think, ending there. It's a cause that we're ready to get behind. Oberyn's passionate hatred is levelled against two men who have truly earned it, Gregor and Tywin, all of which serves to encourage the reader to root for the Dornishmen, who only a few pages prior made us feel uneasy. There is something decidedly heroic about a man seeking justice for his family, and in the build-up towards Oberyn's deadly confrontation with Gregor Clegane, George is finding ways to make us emotionally invested in this rogue character and his thirst for vengeance. So, our introduction to the first major Dornish character is exciting, tense and illuminating. The cultural differences between Dawn and the rest of Westeros, such as a refreshing open-mindedness towards sexuality, creates diversity and adds a new layer to George's world-building. When we next hear about Oberyn, Tyrion has settled him as far away from the Tyrells as possible, yet not far enough. It says, Already there had been a brawl in a flea-bottom pot shop that left one Tyrell man-at-arms dead and two of Lord Cargillan's scalded, and an ugly confrontation in the yard when Mace Tyrell's wizened little mother called Ilaria Sand the serpent's whore. Aside from the awkward friction between the Dornish and Reachmen escalating into slurs and physical violence, Oberyn himself persistently requests that Tyrion deliver him justice before long. In the lead-up to the royal wedding, tensions within the capital are mounting, and concerned with where the trail of justice will lead, Tyrion and Tywin discuss the looming presence of the Red Viper. Tywin confides to Tyrion that he has been considering how best to appease Oberyn Martell and his entourage, and that the prince's presence here is unfortunate. It seems that Oberyn taking the small council seat in Doran's stead has caught Tywin entirely off guard, and Tyrion senses the prince will not content himself with Sir Gregor's head alone. Tywin, however, believing himself cunning, will not even grant Oberyn Gregor's head, and instead intends to hide himself and his mountain behind a veil of plausible deniability. Here's their exchange. Oberyn knows that Gregor was the one who... He knows nothing. He's heard tales, stable gossip, and kitchen calumnies. He has no crumb of proof. Sir Gregor is certainly not about to confess to him. I mean to keep him well away for so long as the Dornishmen are in King's Landing. And when Oberyn demands the justice he came for, I will tell him that Sir Amory Lorch killed Elia and her children, Lord Tywin said calmly. So will you, if he asks. Sir Amory Lorch is dead, Tyrion said flatly. Precisely. Vargo Hote had Sir Amory torn apart by a bear after the fall of Harrenhal. That ought to be sufficiently grisly to appease even Oberyn Martell. You may call that justice. It is justice. 
It was Sir Amory who brought me the girl's body, if you must know. He found her hiding under her father's bed, as if she believed Rhaegar could still protect her. Princess Ilya and the babe were in the nursery, a floor below. Well, it's a tale, and Sir Amory's not like to deny it. What will you tell Oberyn when he asks who gave Lorch his orders? Sir Amory acted on his own in the hope of winning favor from the new king. Robert's hatred for Rhaegar was scarcely a secret. And when Tyrion comments that, in Tywin's place, he would have let Robert Baratheon bloody his own hands, Tywin attempts to justify the killings by highlighting that the murder of children was necessary to secure Robert's throne, although he does concede that his henchmen acted more brutally than he had intended. With Tywin displaying little remorse, the conversation turns towards the Red Wedding, another event where his knack for Machiavellian plotting ended in unspeakable atrocity. By the time Tywin makes a feeble, disingenuous attempt to justify and brush off the massacre as merely a dozen dead at dinner, we know he's a man who will consistently defend the indefensible and that Oberyn's search for justice will almost certainly end with him. With Rob and Catelyn Stark dead after the desecration of guest right at the Twins, and the Stark troops ruthlessly slaughtered by their own allies, Tywin now steps into focus as one of the key villains in the saga. Given the fierce and relentless Oberyn is determined to prize the truth of his sister's downfall from the very walls within which she was murdered, the previously untouchable Tywin begins to seem vulnerable. On the morning of Joffrey's wedding, Oberyn presents him with a red gold brooch wrought in the shape of a scorpion, although in hindsight the prince should have been wary of alluding to poison. Joffrey is later poisoned to death by the Tyrells, and had Tyrion not made himself prime suspect by thoughtlessly pouring away the dying king's wine after a series of public confrontations, suspicion would no doubt have fallen at the feet of the Dornish contingent given Oberyn's known penchant for poison. The Purple Wedding, as it's referred to by readers, changes the trajectory of Tyrion's story dramatically as he's imprisoned at Cersei's behest on charges of regicide and kinslaying. Isolated in a tower cell of the Red Keep, Tyrion awaits trial for his alleged crimes, which is to be conducted in the throne room where Joffrey died. With his wife Sansa missing, Tyrion struggles to think of a single witness who would stand to defend and potentially exonerate him, and he cuts an entirely lonely figure as he discusses the matter with his uncle Kevin. Small folk and nobility alike are now united in their loathing for Tyrion, and Kevin relays that Cersei has had no trouble finding keen witnesses for her prosecution. Realising that the odds are stacked against him, and that the chances of a fair trial are now slimmer than slim, Tyrion contemplates whether his best bet for survival is a trial by combat, thinking, it had saved him in the Vale, why not here? Yet such is Tyrion's unpopularity that he struggles to imagine who in the world would champion him, especially given Kevin's reveal that, should it come to it, Cersei's champion would be none other than the near-invincible eight-foot monster, Gregor Clegane. One old friend Tyrion hopes he can count on is Bronn, who contemplates defeating Gregor by taking the big man off his feet. Still, the risk is too high, and with Bronn's recent upward mobility bringing him together with Lawless Stokeworth, he's not about to fight to the death against Gregor on Tyrion's behalf. As close as the pair are, 
Bronn reminds Tyrion that he's not his brother before he, quote, walked out of the door, the castle, and his life. The trial itself is presided over by three judges, Mace, Tywin, and Oberyn, and is every bit as unfair and shambolic as Tyrion had feared. Slaps, slights, and half-hearted threats previously made towards Joffrey are recounted in a new murderous light. A procession of witnesses recall that Tyrion was serving wine to Joffrey at the time of his death, which would have given him the perfect opportunity to administer the poison Pycelle reveals to be the Strangler, previously introduced to the readers in the Crescent Prologue chapter. The Grand Maester no doubt overjoyed to be gaining revenge over Tyrion for his forced beard trim and imprisonment, tells the court that Tyrion had previously stolen his poisons. When Varys steps forward, citing information gained from his mute child spies, Tyrion thinks, how do I question a little bird? With the weight of evidence piling up against him, Cersei calls an end to proceedings, but declares there will be one final mystery witness on the morrow. Friendless and alone, Tyrion heads back to his tower, believing himself doomed. However, just when he seems resigned to his fate, an unexpected guest enters his quarters. Are judges permitted to visit the accused, he asks Oberyn? Princes are permitted to go where they will. Or so I told your guard, comes the response. Taking a cup of wine as he makes himself comfortable, Oberyn explains that he's ignoring marriage overtures from Cersei and bringing an old tale about Dornish resistance against the Tyrells and the young dragon into the conversation says he would rather be killed by scorpions than bed the Queen Regent. He also conveys his unwavering disdain for Tywin and altogether we sense Tyrion might have an ally after all. When Oberyn insinuates that in the wake of Joffrey's death, Doran could crown the fallen king's eldest sibling Marcella rather than the next male heir Tommen, in accordance with Dornish laws and customs of equality that are not recognised elsewhere in Westeros, we can be sure that the Martells will not merely satisfy themselves with Gregor's head. Oberyn and Doran have pervasive plots afoot which stretch further than the Lannisters might have imagined, and in confiding in Tyrion these treasonous notions, the Red Viper is again setting Tyrion aside from his family and trusting in him. When Oberyn tells Tyrion that his father may not live forever, it says something about the way he said it made the hairs on the back of his neck bristle. In that instant, Tyrion realizes that Oberyn is serious about bringing justice not only to Tywin's henchmen, but to the man who gave the orders to kill the royal children, Tywin himself. Given Tywin's formidable, overbearing shadow has loomed over Tyrion his whole life, and that his father is ready to preside over his execution, it must have been a strange feeling to suddenly be contemplating the man's mortality. Is it treason to say a man is mortal? Valor Morghulis was how they said it in Valyria of old. All men must die, says Oberyn darkly. With the Dornishman placing trust in Tyrion's innocence, he then searches for reciprocation when the subject of Elia's death arises. Tyrion repeats the story that Amory Lorch killed Princess Rhaenys, but has recently died in the bear pit at Harrenhal. But Tyrion goes a step further and also confirms the open secret that it was Gregor Clegane who murdered Elia and Aegon while falling short of laying blame at his father's door. 
This denial makes no odds to Oberyn, who is already convinced of Tywin's guilt, and recognises that Tyrion is being a dutiful son. However, one person Oberyn believes to be not guilty is Tyrion, and so the pair are united by a sense of injustice. With Mace and Tywin sure to condemn Tyrion on the morrow, Oberyn concedes that his verdict as the third judge will hold no sway. Instead, he shocks Tyrion by offering to protect him in another way, by doing what Bronn wouldn't, standing in as his champion in a trial by combat. Given we've already been told the Crown's champion would be Gregor Clegane, we understand that speaking for Tyrion's innocence might not be the only motive for Oberyn to take on this formidable challenge and put his life on the line against a man who at times seems more beast than human. In binding the lives and fates of both Oberyn and Tyrion together against a character so wholly evil, George raises the stakes sky high, and our emotional investment in the upcoming fight to the death, accentuated by rising themes of justice and revenge, reach critical mass. The setup for one of the most dramatic moments of the saga has thus far been masterful. But even with Oberyn's offer on the table, Tyrion must first face the final day of his trial. When the last witness is revealed to be his former lover Shay, who goes on to give a false testimony which further frames, demonises and humiliates him, Tyrion has had about as much injustice and mockery as he can stomach. With no witnesses and nothing to say in his own defence, and his heroics at the Blackwater long forgotten, Tyrion launches into a tirade against all of those who now seek to see him executed. He shocks the court by demanding a trial by battle rather than accepting Kevin's offer of taking the Black. When Mace asks Tyrion who will represent him against Gregor, it says, Prince Oberyn of Dawn rose to his feet. The dwarf has quite convinced me. The uproar was deafening. And when he returns to his cell, Tyrion takes great satisfaction in the dilemma he's caused his father, thinking, if Prince Oberyn won, it would further inflame Highgarden against the Dornish. Mace Tyrell would see the man who crippled his son helping the dwarf who almost poisoned his daughter to escape his rightful punishment. And if the mountain triumphed, Doran Martell might well demand to know why his brother had been served with death instead of the justice Tyrion had promised him. Dorne might crown Marcella after all. Oberyn coming to the capital has really set the cat amongst the pigeons, and all of a sudden, Lannister power, which we feared had been consolidated following the treacherous Red Wedding, seems altogether fragile. Karma might yet come to bite Tywin Lannister. The morning of the trial, Tyrion is granted leave to consult his champion. Oberyn casually drinking wine indicates that he is both relaxed and unafraid about the prospect of facing Gregor. Tyrion doesn't know whether to be reassured or nervous, and describes Gregor in detail to make sure Oberyn knows what he's up against. He is almost eight feet tall and must weigh thirty stone, all of it muscle. He fights with a two-handed greatsword, but needs only one hand to wield it. He has been known to cut men in half with a single blow. His armour is so heavy that no lesser man could bear the weight, let alone move in it. And with blithe confidence, Oberyn seems unimpressed, and like Bronn, concludes the way to defeat a big man is to get him off his feet. Once they go down, they're dead, he says. 
Whatever comfort Oberon's fearlessness had given Tyrion is undone when he reveals that his weapon of choice will be not a sword, but a spear. The logic is simple. A large man in heavy armor with a wide reach needs to be countered with a long, swift weapon. Oberon explains that, however thick his plate, there will be gaps at the joints, inside the elbow and knee, beneath the arms. I will find a place to tickle him, I promise you. Not only is a spear fitting as a symbol of dawn on this day of reckoning, but it might also be the perfect weapon with which to administer poison. Oberyn is already known to have poisoned Edgar Ironwood in a duel, albeit with a sword, and his knowledge of poisons and the dark arts has been well documented. When Tyrion notices a black fluid glistening on the spear's haft and is told in no uncertain terms not to touch the weapon, readers are left in little doubt why Oberyn is so keen to tickle the chinks in Gregor's armour. To highlight the prince's audacity even further, he insinuates that Tyrion could one day join the Dornish cause in opposing the Lannister yoke when Mycella is crowned queen. However, like Robb Stark planning to retake the North before he is unceremoniously slaughtered at the Twins, by offering an optimistic version of the future to fire our imaginations, George is preparing to rip out our hearts as fully as possible. As Oberyn makes the final preparations to his spear and chainmail, he recounts the story of his trip to Casterly Rock once again. This time he concludes that Tywin's fateful orders during the sack of King's Landing were revenge for Ilya marrying the crown prince and scuppering Tywin's plans for a Cersei-Rhaegar union which would have united the Lannisters with House Targaryens. It says... Your father is not a man to forget such slights. He taught that lesson to Lord and Lady Tarbeck once, and to the reigns of Castamere. And at King's Landing, he taught it to my sister. Ilya and her children have waited long for justice. But this day, they shall have it. And as a thousand or so onlookers gather at the outer ward so close to the designated fighting area that gold cloaks have to hold them back, Oberyn finally comes face to face with a man who brutalised his sister. It says, Beneath a long yellow surcoat bearing the three black dogs of Clegane, he wore heavy plate over chainmail, dull grey steel, dinted and scarred in battle. Beneath that would be boiled leather and layers of quilting. A flat-top great helm was bolted to his gorget, with breaths around the mouth and nose, and a narrow slit for vision. The crest atop it was a stone fist. When Ilaria sees Gregor, she asks, You are going to fight that? Oberyn replies, with all the self-assurance in the world, I am going to kill that. When the battle commences, Oberyn dances around the mountain, intending to tire out the big man. The Red Viper introduces himself as Ilya's brother, and so his mantra begins. You raped her? You murdered her, you killed her children. It becomes clear that Oberyn is not only here to kill Gregor, but to elicit a public confession from him in front of Tywin and the crowd. This is the closest Oberyn is going to get to making his nemesis stand trial, and as readers, we can't distinguish what's justice and what's vengeance, where one ends and the other begins. The two men spar, and Oberyn begins to make use of the fact that Gregor's vision is limited due to the narrow slit in his heavy helm. 
The prince, who in contrast is lightly armoured, keeps Gregor at a safe distance with his spear, and the pair spiral around each other for some time while Oberyn continues to taunt his foe with his mantra. One thing to consider is that Gregor is known to suffer from acute migraines, possibly related to his extreme size, which once led him to kill his own man for snoring, and so having a quick confident opponent circling around him, continuously shouting at the top of his lungs, surely irritated and distracted him. And sure enough, Gregor tells Oberyn to be quiet as he begins to tire, before screaming, shut up, and charging toward the prince, who responds by dropping his spear and evading a series of close blows. He rolls out of the way of Gregor's savage swing, but a stable boy behind him isn't so lucky and has his arm severed by the blow. The boy screams in agony, which, given his headaches, again seems to cause the mountain some distress, and he decapitates the unfortunate soul, sending blood and brains spraying across the yard. By now, our hearts are well and truly in our mouths. The Red Viper crouched, squinting, and sent his spear darting forward again. Sir Gregor hacked at it, but the thrust had only been a feint. Off balance, he stumbled forward a step. Prince Oberyn tilted his dinted metal shield. A shaft of sunlight blazed blindingly off polished gold and copper into the narrow slit of his foe's helm. Clegane lifted his own shield against the glare. Prince Oberyn's spear flashed like lightning and found the gap in the heavy plate, the joint under the arm. The point punched through mail and boiled leather. Gregor gave a choked grunt as the Dornishman twisted his spear and yanked it free. Elia, say it! Elia of Dawn! He was circling, spear poised for another thrust. Say it! The blood trickling from the mountain's armpit was his own now, and he was bleeding even more heavily inside the breastplate. When he tried to take a step, one knee buckled. Prince Oberyn had circled behind him. Elia of Dawn! Sir Gregor started to turn, but too slow and too late. The spearhead went through the back of the knee this time, through the layers of chain and leather between the plates on thigh and calf. The mountain reeled, swayed, and then collapsed face first onto the ground. His huge sword went flying from his hand. Slowly, ponderously, he rolled onto his back. Oberyn is successful in his goal of getting the big man off his feet, and as Gregor lies helpless, sprawled on the ground, the prince vaults over him and sticks his spear right through him. Four feet of broken spear jutted from Clegane's belly as Prince Oberyn rolled, rose, and dusted himself off. So after the rush of adrenaline, readers breathe a deep sigh of relief, as does our POV Tyrion, whose life is on the line. Victory is so close, we can almost taste it. Yet Oberyn is not satisfied with merely killing Gregor, and he attempts to extract the final confession he so craves. Throughout the proceedings, the prince's fearlessness and confidence has been sky-high and were taken back to his words to Tyrion earlier that morning. Once they go down, they're dead. As such, he nonchalantly leans over Gregor, demanding that he says his sister's name. And we all know what happens next. 
We cringe in horror as we realise Oberyn's self-assurance has strayed into overconfidence when Gregor grabs the viper with his tree-trunk arms and screams, Elia of Dawn, I killed her screaming whelp, then I raped her, then I smashed her fucking head in, like this. As he drew back his huge fist, the blood on his gauntlet seemed to smoke in the cold dawn air. There was a sickening crunch. Elaria Sand wailed in terror, and Tyrion's breakfast came boiling back up. To Tyrion's absolute dismay, Oberyn's teeth are splintered, his head burst open like an overripe melon in Gregor's vice-like grip. Given Gregor is still alive, albeit barely, he is the official victor of the trial, and so Tyrion is condemned to be executed. I put my life in the Red Viper's hands, and he dropped it, he thinks to himself in resignation. Ultimately, Oberyn's reign as the magnetic, cocksure font of revenge is a brief one. The prince lit up our pages and demonstrated a David and Goliath level of bravery until the very end, marking himself as one of the most colourful and unforgettable characters in the saga. Sometimes those who burn the brightest burn the fastest, and his sudden brutal downfall after a rollercoaster ride of emotions leaves us empty, sickened, and extremely sorrowful. Yet for his part, Oberyn's tragic demise might not have all been for nothing. With his final words, Oberyn successfully extracted the confession he sought before a witness stand of hundreds, and as we'll see, Gregor later dies screaming from the wounds he sustained. The aftershock of Oberyn's death echoes and permeates through the story to ensure his efforts in seeking justice for his sister, her children, and Dorne were not for naught. In the next segment, we'll assess the aftermath of Oberyn's death and detail the undeniable legacy of his life from Dorne to King's Landing, beginning the moment he died for his cause. But first... Here's an ad from another Song of Ice and Fire podcast. Hello, thank you for calling the Song of Ice and Fire resource hotline. How may I direct your call? Um, hi. I'm running out of Aswaf podcasts. What? Really? Are you are you sure? Anyway, what what are you looking for in a Song of Ice and Fire podcast, sweetie? Hmm. I think I want characters. Do they have characters? Yes, yes, I think I have many characters, mo- most of them. Mm, I think I want voices. Do they have voices? This one might have voices. Uh, yeah, yeah, they might have voices. Oh good, so they're funny. Well, you can say they're hysterical. R- right, so I'm going to go ahead and transfer you and you're gonna wanna head over to Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, a streaming platform near you to check out Girls Gone Canon covering a Song of Ice and Fire POV character by POV character as well as the His Dark Materials series. All right, I think I got that down, Girls Gone Canon. One last thing, ma'am. What about horses? I said have a nice day, sir. Ma- ma'am? Horses? I did not come for some mama's show of an inquiry. I came for justice for Elia and her children, and I will have it. Starting with this lummox, Gregor Clegane. But not, I think, ending there.
A great and underappreciated aspect of Oberyn's story in A Song of Ice and Fire is what was set up by his demise in the aftermath of his epic battle with Gregor. It's true that there was never a dull moment when he was on our pages and that he's dearly missed, but George has endeavored to ensure his mark on the saga is both enduring and pervasive long after his death. In this way, his memory and legacy remain impossible to forget for characters and readers alike. And perhaps the first Oberyn-related question on everyone's lips following his death is, what happened to Gregor Clegane? Last seen with, quote, four feet of broken spear jutting from his belly, and with a long history of atrocities under his belt, readers are for once united in their primal urge to see Gregor die screaming. But the latter pages of A Storm of Swords betray no further information as to his conditional whereabouts, and so we have to wait until A Feast for Crows to get an update on the big man's situation. Given the aforementioned suspicious black fluid we see on Oberyn's spear the morning of the trial, it's no surprise to discover that the Viper had taken care to poison Gregor during their showdown. When Cersei requests a Gregor progress report from her new maester of choice, Kyburn, we get this. I have examined him as you commanded. The poison on the viper's spear was manticore venom from the east. I would stake my life on that. Pycelle says no. He told my lord father that manticore venom kills the instant it reaches the heart. And so it does. But this venom has been thickened somehow so as to draw out the mountains dying. Thickened? Thickened how? With some other substance? It may be, as your grace suggests, though in most cases adulterating a poison only lessens its potency. It may be that the cause is less natural, let us say. A spell, I think. Hearing that Oberyn may have used dark magic to extend the mountain's suffering as long as possible feeds into our collective thirst for revenge, a theme that George enjoys toying with in order to elicit reactions from us that might lead to some form of reflection or self-examination. When we receive further disturbing details, perhaps the author is wondering if he can conjure up just the tiniest bit of sympathy for one of the most unequivocally barbaric villains in the series. Kyburn goes on to explain, Gregor is dying of the venom, but slowly and in exquisite agony. My efforts to ease his pain have proved as fruitless as Pycelle's. Sir Gregor is overly accustomed to the poppy, I fear. His squire tells me that he is plagued by blinding headaches and oft quaffs the milk of the poppy as lesser men quaff ale. Be that as it may, his veins have turned black from head to heel, his water is clouded with pus, and the venom has eaten a hole in his side as large as my fist. It is a wonder that the man is still alive, if truth be told. When Orion Waters eventually shares the news of Gregor's death in a small council meeting in the lead-up to Cersei supposedly sending his head to Dorne, we can look back at Oberyn's downfall in a new light. Of course, the viper having his head crushed when he had effectively won the fight will always feel like a shocking tragedy, yet the fact that he made Gregor publicly confess his atrocities paired with the big man eventually dying in agony means that in a certain sense, Oberyn's whirlwind crusade through a storm of swords was in fact a success. Oberyn completed his personal mission after all, or at least a major part of it, and the fact that he died doing so doesn't necessarily take away from the feat. 
In spite of his fatal overconfidence, from another angle, he heroically gave everything for the cause he so believed in, and knowing this gives much more meaning to his life than to his fatal mistake. However, seemingly unwilling to give us anything we want, George is not done with Gregor just yet. Since the prologue of A Game of Thrones, there's been evidence of a new magic coming into the world, one which allows that death is not necessarily the end of life. Kyburn, who by now is established as a dabbler in the dark arts, takes full advantage and seeks to resurrect dead Gregor and provide his primary enabler Cersei with an eight-foot undead bodyguard. When she requests a young and swift replacement for Loras Tyrell in the Kingsguard, Kyburn says, I had another sort of champion in mind. What he lacks in gallantry, he will give you tenfold in devotion. He will protect your son, kill your enemies, and keep your secrets, and no living man will be able to withstand him. Further into the story, when Cersei finds herself incarcerated and awaiting trial for the crimes of murder, treason, and fornication, she realizes, as Tyrion did, that her best bet will be a trial by combat. Kyburn soothes her anxiety by announcing that her new champion is ready to defend her. With the knowledge that Kyburn has ordered some oversized armor that no normal man could fit into, we wait with bated breath to see Cersei's new protector. Following her walk of shame, we meet this new character, named Sir Robert Strong. Her savior was real, eight feet tall, or maybe taller, with legs as thick around as trees. He had a chest worthy of a plow horse and shoulders that would not disgrace an ox. His armor was plate steel, enameled white, and bright as a maiden's hopes, worn over gilded mail. A great helm hid his face. From its crest streamed seven silken plumes in the rainbow colors of the faith. A pair of golden seven-pointed stars clasped his billowing cloak at the shoulders. Given Kevin's observation that this Gregor-shaped man, who has apparently taken a convenient vow of silence, is said to neither eat nor use the privy, it seems that Robert Strong is almost unquestionably undead Gregor. While his resurrection might take something away from Oberyn's achievement of killing the brute, in another respect we understand that he's not really Gregor anymore in the true sense. But Dawn will not see it like that. With Gregor's head supposedly sent to Doran Martell in order to appease the Dornish, and Oberyn's daughter Nymeria Sand due to run into Robert Strong when she takes up her father's small council seat, it seems unlikely that the Oberyn versus Gregor plot thread is over just yet. Another of the main plot lines fed directly by Oberyn's tragedy is Tyrion's final confrontation with his father. Secretly released from the Black Cells by Jaime and Varys to make his escape to Essos, Tyrion takes a quick detour to the Tower of the Hand, only to discover his ex-lover Shay has been sleeping with Tywin. Tyrion murders Shay with the Hand's necklace before entering the privy with a loaded crossbow to finish off his father as he sits stunned on the toilet. While on the surface, this is a major turning point for House Lannister, some readers believe there's more to this scene than meets the eye. The fact that Tywin was so long on the privy might seem like a throwaway detail, but does it in fact hint towards the possibility that Oberyn had poisoned Tywin at some point before the trial by combat? 
This fan theory suggests that Oberyn might have administered a slow-acting poison as an insurance policy to make sure that Tywin died no matter the result of his battle against Gregor. During Tyrion's trial, when called upon as a witness, Pycelle discusses the different types of poisons found in Westeros and beyond, noting one in particular. Widow's blood, this one is called, for the color— a cruel potion, it shuts down a man's bladder and bowels until he drowns in his own poisons. So, could Tywin have been suffering the effects of widow's blood when Tyrion found him taking his time on the privy? Given the backstory we've analysed today, Tywin's leading role in the murders of Elia and her children, implicitly confirmed by Tyrion the day Oberyn visited him in his tower cell in the Red Keep, and Oberyn's early statement to Tyrion, I came for justice for Elia and her children, and I will have it, starting with this lummox Gregor Clegane, but not, I think, ending there, there seems to be little question that Oberyn was not prepared to stop at Gregor in his search for justice. In fact, when Oberyn discusses Tywin with Tyrion, he delivers the ominous line, Your father may not live forever. While the prince insinuates he meant this purely in the philosophical Valamogulis sense, it says something about the way he said it made the hairs on the back of Tyrion's neck bristle. With a strong motive well established, Oberyn's background as an aficionado of exotic poisons, along with his close proximity to Tywin through A Storm of Swords, combined to prove that he was at the least capable of such a maneuver. But the theory really takes off in Feast when Tywin's corpse is displayed for seven days within the Sept of Baelor. With Cersei ordering preparations for a state funeral to bury her father, the presentation of his corpse was supposed to be an act of reverence, to honor the man many in the Seven Kingdoms had looked up to over the years as Hand of the King, Head of House Lannister, and Warden of the West. But not only does Tywin's corpse look disgusting, with, quote, a foul white fluid seeping through the joints of his splendid gold and crimson armour that causes immediate stress to onlookers such as young Tommen, there's a decidedly foul smell about the body which seems excessive even for a corpse. Here's a passage from Cersei's POV. It was a relief when the singing finally ended. The smell coming off her father's corpse seemed to have grown stronger. Most of the mourners had the decency to pretend that nothing was amiss, but Cersei saw two of Lady Marjorie's cousins wrinkling their little Tyrell noses. As she and Tommen were walking back down the aisle, the Queen thought she heard someone mutter privy and chortle, but when she turned her head to see who had spoken, a sea of solemn faces gazed at her blankly. They would never have dared make japes about him when he was still alive. He would have turned their bows to water with a look. Given that the stench of Tywin's cadaver is repeatedly remarked upon, it does seem that George is drawing our attention to the odor on purpose. And when Pycelle, who oversaw the preservation of the body, is trying to undermine his rival Maester Kyburn, we get this heated interaction with Cersei. This man is... he is unfit! Do not presume to speak to me of fitness, not after the stinking mockery you made of my lord father's corpse. Your grace cannot think! Pascal raised a spotted hand as if to ward off a blow. 
The silent sisters removed Lord Tywin's bowels and organs, drained his blood, every care was taken, his body was stuffed with salts and fragrant herbs. Oh, spare me the disgusting details. I smelled the results of your care. Knowing Tywin's corpse had been well tended to, with its organs having been removed and replaced with sweet-smelling herbs, isn't it curious that it still smelled so undeniably vile? Could poisoning by the aforementioned widow's blood, which causes the bowels to shut down, conceivably cause such a stench? Supporters of the Tywin was poison theory view this unsavoury aspect of his demise as the cornerstone of their case, and it certainly makes some sense. Why else would George have Tywin's body causing such a stink? But in 2018, George was interviewed by the Russian webzine Medusa, where he shared a pertinent detail that might pour some amount of cold water on this theory. When asked if he had ever taken anything from classic Russian literature, George responded, I borrowed only one thing from Russian literature that I could think of, which was the little bit I did about the corpse of Tywin Lannister, taken from the brothers Karamazov. In the novel by Dostoevsky, a character called Father Zosima dies, and like Tywin, his corpse is displayed publicly. The mourners are disgusted when a foul stench emanates from the body, a smell so bad it's perceived as an ill omen, calling into question the character's saint-like reputation. So, rather than being indicative of prior poisoning, could Tywin's stench simply be a literary reference and revolting metaphor for his villainous legacy? Is George summarising Tywin's Machiavellian impact on the story as one giant nauseating stench that lingers indefinitely? If that's the case, perhaps the theory becomes weaker, though it's possible the two are not mutually exclusive. In any case, the collection of circumstantial evidence together with motive makes an interesting case, and Oberyn poisoning Tywin makes perfect sense in a lot of respects – so fans continue to debate the merits of this theory today. For our part, while we wouldn't dismiss it out of hand, we would note that certain theories can make sense without falling within the author's intentions. Whether Oberyn had the last laugh over Tywin, or if George was merely poking some final fun at a man whose legacy was poisonous in other ways, is for you to decide. And another part of Oberyn's legacy to consider is how his death affects the plans he and his brother had made before he departed for King's Landing. It's made abundantly clear in the Dornish chapters of Feast and Dance that Oberyn and Doran Martell were above all else a team. Whatever 4D chess the ruling Prince of Dawn was playing, his younger brother was an integral part of it given that Doran will tell his daughter in A Feast for Crows that the ultimate goal for House Martell is, quote, vengeance, justice, fire and blood, we can guess that Oberyn saw his role as bringing about at least the first two items on that list. Vengeance is a major theme of A Song of Ice and Fire, and the perils of a consuming focus upon revenge are illustrated in no uncertain terms. Take the case of Gregor Clegane, one of the focal points of Oberyn Martell's mission. Gregor is the object of numerous quests for vengeance in A Song of Ice and Fire, starting with his own brother Sandor, scarred for life by his brutal brother as a young boy, and also including Arya Stark, who holds Gregor responsible for the deaths of many of her companions in the Riverlands. 
But it should also be noted that Arya's own father sought to bring Gregor to justice for his crimes in the Riverlands and made a potent statement about the difference between vengeance and justice to Sir Mark Piper in A Game of Thrones. Vengeance? I thought we were speaking of justice. Burning Clegane's fields and slaughtering his people will not restore the king's peace, only your injured pride. He goes on, People of Sherer, I cannot give you back your homes or your crops, nor can I restore your dead to life, but perhaps I can give you some small measure of justice in the name of our king, Robert. Ned went on to order a hundred men under the command of Lord Beric Dondarrion to seek out Sir Gregor and deliver his sentence to him. I charge you to ride to the Westlands with all haste, to cross the Red Fork of the Trident under the King's flag, and there bring the King's justice to the false knight Gregor Clegane, and to all those who shared in his crimes. I denounce him, and detain him, and strip him of all rank and titles, of all lands and incomes and holdings, and do sentence him to death. May the gods take pity on his soul. This group of men sent out to bring justice to one man would become the Brotherhood Without Banners, a vigilante group with its own unique ideas about justice for many. But the war of attrition grinding the Riverlands to dust over the course of many months changed things, and when Beric Dondarrion gave up his life force to revive the wife of the man who had first sent him into the Riverlands, the Brotherhood's mission would change from justice to vengeance. When Brienne encounters Lady Stoneheart's Brotherhood in A Feast for Crows and asks if they are capable of justice, Thoros of Mir replies, I remember justice. It had a pleasant taste. Justice was what we were about when Beric led us, or so we told ourselves. Thoros goes on to blame the atrocities of war for the shift, telling Brienne sadly, war makes monsters of us all. And so, the fine line between the two is defined early on in the saga, and as a theme is returned to again and again. In the case of Doran Martel, equating vengeance with justice seems almost certain to lead to no good end, and indeed the end of his brother's life coming in an arena of justice transformed into a venue of vengeance seems to prove the point. But the question remains whether Oberyn achieved his and his brother's goals. In his final meeting with Tyrion before the trial, Oberyn suggests that Tyrion accompany him to Dorne. Perhaps you will return to Sunspear with me when the day's bloodletting is done. My brother Doran would be most pleased to meet the rightful heir to Casterly Rock, especially if he brought his lovely wife, the Lady of Winterfell. Plan on a lengthy visit. You and Doran have many matters of mutual interest to discuss. Music, trade, history, wine, the dwarf's penny, the laws of inheritance and succession. No doubt an uncle's counsel would be of benefit to Queen Marcella in the trying times ahead. And so it's implied that the play will be for Dawn to support the claims of Tyrion and Sansa to Casterly Rock and Winterfell respectively in exchange for their support of Marcella's claim to the throne upon which her younger brother now sits. This is a far cry from Tyrion's earlier fears that Mycella could come to harm as a Lannister hostage. While Tyrion contemplates what this would mean for his family, Oberyn recounts once again their first meeting, this time with the important details about the betrothals that were sought, rejected and ultimately made. 
though Tyrion asserts that Oberyn's mother, in marrying Elia to Rhaegar, won the contest, remember that Oberyn isn't so sure. Your father is not a man to forget such slights. He taught that lesson to Lord and Lady Tarbeck once, and to the reigns of Castamere, and at King's Landing he taught it to my sister. Oberyn concludes that the day will be about justice not only for Tyrion, but his sister. Elia and her children have waited long for justice, but this day they shall have it. Again, Tywin seems to be as much in the crosshairs as Gregor, and the correspondence of justice and vengeance, indicated by Doran's words to his daughter in A Feast for Crows, is in full force. Which brings us back to Doran's mission statement. His final goal, as stated to Arianne, is fire and blood, and that seems to be a reference to the long game he's played, with his brother's cooperation and knowledge, to bring a Targaryen monarch back to Westeros and seat them upon the Iron Throne, with a Martell spouse by their side, essentially recreating the pairing of Rhaegar and Ilya. We know that Quentin Martell was sent on his mission to Daenerys either prior to or around the same time as Oberyn was sent to King's Landing. With the stress upon Doran and Oberyn's partnership, we have to wonder how to reconcile what Oberyn tells Tyrion on the morning of the trial with Quentin's mission. We think the answer is probably twofold. First is something Doran tells Nymeria Sand in A Feast for Crows. He went beyond anything I asked of him. Take the measure of this boy king and his council, and make note of their strengths and weaknesses, I told him, on this terrace. We were eating oranges. Find us friends, if there were any to be found. Learn what you can of Ilya's end, but see that you do not provoke Lord Tywin unduly. So, it's possible that Oberyn was acting unilaterally in offering to support Tyrion in Crown Marcella. Certainly Tyrion's trial isn't a situation anyone could have predicted. The second answer lies in something Tyrion thinks when Oberyn first makes his offer. If Varys had his little birds listening, Oberyn was giving them a ripe earful. The suggestion of crowning Marcella then may have been simple misdirection on Oberyn's part, an effort to shield Dawn's true intent from the inevitable spies and whisperers of the court. It may also have been that crowning Marcella had already been discussed as a backup plan of sorts. Ariane certainly believed it was what her uncle intended, though her rash plotting in A Feast for Crows might have changed that. In the end, Oberyn's death only provided more fuel to the Dornish quest for vengeance, as his eldest daughters continually make plain to Prince Doran in A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons that they now seek vengeance for their father's death. Obara wants to start a war of vengeance, bringing the wrath of Dorne down upon King's Landing and Old Town. Lady Nim's goals are more focused. Four lives will suffice for me, Lord Tywin's golden twins as payment for Ilya's children, the old lion for Ilya herself, and last of all, the little king for my father. Notice she never suggests harming my cellar. When Doran arrives in Sunspear after his brother's death, the city is a royal of Dornish calling out for vengeance for the Viper. When Ariahotar calls for the crowd to make way for the Prince of Dawn, a woman cries, the prince is dead, and we see perhaps the problem of Doran keeping to the comforts of the water gardens while allowing his brother to be his public face at Sunspear. 
the people of Dawn cry out for vengeance, as Obara Sand had told Hotar at the water gardens. Thousands are crossing the sands afoot to climb the boneway, so they may help Ilaria bring my father home. The septs are packed to bursting, and the red priests have lit their temple fires. In the pillow houses, women are coupling with every man who comes to them and refusing any coin. In Sunspear, on the broken arm, along the green blood, in the mountains, out in the deep sand, everywhere, everywhere, women tear their hair and men cry out in rage. The same question is heard on every tongue. What will Doran do? What will his brother do to avenge our murdered prince? And so the legacy of Oberon's death becomes a renewed call for vengeance by a new generation of Dornish. The unpredictability of the eldest sand snakes leads to Doran imprisoning them in a tower at Sunspear. Ariane's plot to crown Myrcella leads to the same result. Only Doran and Oberon's paramour Ilaria Sand seem to comprehend the tragedy of the unending cycle of vengeance. In A Dance with Dragons, when Gregor Clegane's alleged head arrives at the Dornish court with Aris Oakhart of the Kingsguard, there's a family meeting of sorts at Sunspear. In spite of the apparent evidence of Gregor's death, and thus Oberyn's success, his daughters aren't satisfied. The shadow of a doubt still exists. No one saw Gregor die after all, and in spite of Tywin's death, the Sand Snakes feel the job is not yet finished. When Ilaria Sand asks where this quest will end, Nim replies, It ends in blood as it began. It ends when Casterly Rock is cracked open, so the sun can shine on the maggots and the worms within. It ends with the utter ruin of Tywin Lannister and all his works. Ilaria is not having it. She would like Gregor's death to be an end for the sake of all of Oberyn's daughters. Oberyn wanted vengeance for Elia. Now the three of you want vengeance for him. I have four daughters, I remind you. Your sisters. My Elia is fourteen, almost a woman. Obella is twelve, on the brink of maidenhood. They worship you, as Doria and Loresa worship them. If you should die, must El and Obella seek vengeance for you, then Doria and Lori for them? Is that how it goes, round and round forever? I ask again, where does it end? I saw your father die. Here is his killer. Can I take a skull to bed with me to give me comfort in the night? Will it make me laugh, write me songs, care for me when I am old and sick? Her words stand as one of the most overt and poetic statements about the perils of vengeance in the series. Similar to Ned Stark, Hilaria Sand seems to believe that ultimately justice and vengeance are incompatible. But Oberyn, and by extension Doran, seemed to believe that justice and vengeance could be two sides of the same coin. In support of this, we remind you of the tale of the Ratcook, that singular folktale from the North that asserts that a man has a right to vengeance. The story suggests that a righteous vengeance is possible if one obeys all other laws of gods and men, even the most horrifying deaths can be excused as vengeance. But in A Dance with Dragons, young Hoster Blackwood and Jamie Lannister have a pertinent exchange, one that highlights the never-ending cycle that Ilaria so deplored just a few chapters previously. The old wounds never heal, my father says. My father had a saying too, never wound a foe when you can kill him. 
Dead men don't claim vengeance. Their sons do. And so we end with questions. Questions the author is asking us in a dialogue that threads through the entire saga so far. What is the line that separates justice and vengeance? Can they be separated? Is it possible to have one without the other? What does justice look like for a brutal killer, even if they are only killers by way of giving orders? Are the ones who follow the orders as guilty or less? What are the costs and where does it end? Within this dialogue, the issues of justice and vengeance are presented as a spectrum. On the one side, we have Ned Stark, who draws a clear line between the two and seems to say that one will never lead to the other. Alaria is on the spectrum, perhaps a bit further than Ned. She clearly recognizes the dangers of a never-ending cycle of vengeance, and though she seems to appreciate the death of her husband's killer, she would like to end the cycle there for the sake of Oberyn's children. Oberyn himself and his brother seem to occupy the middle ground. They will walk the fine line between the two, fully believing that it's possible to have both the visceral satisfaction of revenge and a righteous justice. In this middle ground, the call to vengeance, like Oberyn himself, is seductive and full of promise. The policy of life paying for life, seen in Jack and Hagar's gifts to Arya, and also in Khal Drogo's funeral pyre in Daenerys Ten of A Game of Thrones, seems to exist in tandem with the idea of balance. But Arya Stark represents a sharp tilt towards vengeance for its own sake. She knows that people, in particular Gregor, should be punished for their deeds and seems to possess an eye-for-an-eye mentality that becomes her idea of justice. Sandor Clegane is the slow burn of rage focused on a single person for a great personal wrong. Gregor deserves death for his actions, and Sandor would deliver it no matter the cost to himself. At the far end of the spectrum lies Lady Stoneheart, ironically in life the wife of the man who stands opposite her in this hypothetical spectrum. She's already given every ounce of her life in the name of vengeance, and in death she carries out her perverted justice of killing every fray and every lion or those associated with them she can find. And so we come back to Oberyn. In 1968, George wrote a short story called And Death His Legacy. It's an amateur story, never published until the Dream Songs retrospective in 2003, Although it deals with a politically motivated assassination, its themes don't quite align with A Song of Ice and Fire, except for one thing, its title. When considering the legacy of Oberyn Martell, it's a phrase that we kept returning to. Death is indeed his legacy. His life was, for many years, defined by the deaths of his sister and her children. His own death was the price he paid to achieve vengeance through the deaths of one, and possibly two, of those responsible for Ilya's murder. The aftermath of his life, with his daughters seeking vengeance for his death, and Doran Martell in A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons, still clearly not satisfied with the vengeance his brother had wrought for Ilya, seems like it will inevitably be more death. We, the readers, are left to consider whether we should cheer for Oberyn's successes or mourn the terrible waste of life that is the inevitable result of this cycle of vengeance. 
We have no doubt that as the story continues, this dialogue with the author will also continue, as will Oberyn Martell's legacy of grief and death. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode all about Oberyn Martell. We'll be back soon with a new regular episode in which we'll be diving into the A Storm of Swords epilogue. And now, as always, it's time for us to give credit where credit is due. Thanks to George R.R. R. Martin for giving us characters who make us think. And thanks to Kevin McLeod and Kai Angle for allowing us to use their music in our production. And as usual, we'll end today with thanks to our patrons from the Castle Steel level. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron and you could be hearing your name here too. Sincere thanks to AJ, Egg on the Sixth, Alex, Allie B, Allie C, Amber, Oakenfist, Brand the Builder, Brian, Camille, Casey, Charitable Rereadings, Chris, Christian, Maddie and Jessica, Sir Duncan Cole, Convenience or Death, Sir Archibald Cadogan, Dan S., Dimitri B., Dennis Direwolf, Esme, Liz, Emily of the Erie, Ezra, Felix, Sir Gladworth, Greg, History of Westeros, Engvild, Archmaester Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Brandon B. Fish, Goldie Juke, Jim McGeehan, Winter's King, John Aris, Rider of the Ice Dragon, Sonarion, The White Storm, Julie Beth of Tarth, Judson, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Catherine, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Tree Girl, Sir Galahoo of What, Knight of the Laughing Tree, Lena Snow, known as the Twilight Star, Lemba, Lemmy B, Luke, Monero Geek TV, Maria, Margareta, and our cohort of Matts, Matt A, Matt C, Matt K, and Matt L, as well as Lady Beatrix of House Grey, Maester Mary, Michael M, Nimble Nick One Eric, Patrick, Peter Pebble, PJ, Philip, Paul B, Paul H, Richard, Sam, Sarah, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Sir Swift the Peppered Knight from the House of Black and Grey, Shari, Cern, Terry, Sir Terence Knight of the Cedars, Theo the Cannibal of Casterly Rock, Hema Helminth the Sellsword Sentinel, Virginie, Quarren Halfhand, and Yvonne. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal or Coffee, and comment on our content there. Or find us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or email. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with a new episode. Bye for now. <laughs>